Welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast where we use books to help make sense of the ecological crisis and of what comes next. I'm very excited that our first guest is Emma Maris, an excellent environmental writer whose new book is honestly one of the best I've read in years. It's called Wild Souls, and it asks the question, what do we owe those fellow creatures with whom we share the planet? We all know species are going extinct, animals are getting killed or displaced in the wild, but why should we care? What can we do about it? And what do we do when the rights of one creature seem to conflict with those of another? There are no easy answers. These are messy topics, but Emma offers the best starting point I've seen for how to think through these issues, why we need more spaces of public discussion and democracy to talk about it, and basically how to take seriously the fact that humans aren't the only things that matter on this earth. I really enjoyed this discussion, and I hope you enjoy it too. If you do enjoy it, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash storytellingpod. That's patreon.com slash storytellingpod. All right, um, without further ado, here's the interview. So thanks for coming on the show. I'm here with Emma Maris, um, author of Wild Souls, Freedom and Flourishing in the Non-Human World. Uh, there's so much that I want to talk about in this book. I loved it. Um, but I thought maybe we could start at the very beginning, uh, which is the first word of the title, wild. Um, there are kind of two things that people mean by wild, one of which is something like pristine or untouched by humans. And the other is closer to self-willed or autonomous. Uh, I believe you say in the book that a wild creature wakes up and decides what they will have for breakfast. Um, you, in this book, and a bit in your, your previous book too, uh, you argue pretty strongly that the second version of wild is, is something worth um, valuing, and the first one, not so much. Uh, how did you, you become interested in this question, and, and how has it driven your work? Yeah, so this is this is really this question is at the heart of a lot of my work, and I I became interested in it when I was years ago when I was on staff at the scientific journal Nature, and my beat was conservation biology and ecology, and I think that I was really lucky because I came to those fields as a reporter. Not I didn't go through the system of being trained as a conservationist or as an ecologist, so I came in kind of as an outsider. And I think that really was useful. It gave me a, uh, it gave me, you know, kind of what, what do you call it? Like the beginner's mind, right? I was like, wait, why are we doing this stuff? And what are our goals here? And what's really important about the natural world that we're trying to save? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the assumptions that I think people uh, develop through their years of training that kind of just get baked into their worldview, I didn't have those. So it was easier for me to see how some of the value assumptions in conservation seem to be there was some friction between those value assumptions like the value of pristine nature with our evolving understanding uh, of 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 what what the natural world was actually like and um you know specifically there was a lot of research coming out um, explaining to white audiences what indigenous people had already known, which is that North America and Australia and New Zealand weren't really wildernesses when colonists showed up. They were already managed landscapes that had been cared for and sort of 
in relationship with humans for thousands of years. I think that was a really fundamental um, realization for the entire field of conservation and, and ecology. And we're still, I think those fields are still kind of dealing with that. Um, still trying to reassess what's valuable in the natural world. If it isn't the fact that it's totally untouched by humans, right? Because if you really still think that only nature untouched by humans is wild and valuable, then, then I'm sorry, you're out of luck. There's nothing, there's nothing left for you. That's not, that's not how planet earth is. Um, so we have to reassess our whole value system around the non-human world. And that I've just found that incredibly fascinating and I think it's, um, yeah, it's an unending source of interest for me. Yeah, so I think that gets at why wild as untouched is, well, doesn't exist even if we did want to value it. But what about, why should we care about um, animal welfare or flourishing or freedom of, of animals or other organisms? Um, because I know that it's not really in the kind of founding values of conservation biology. Yeah, no, absolutely not. In fact, the one of the founding documents of conservation biology, uh, a, a piece by uh, Michael Soule from the 80s, actually explicitly says, we do not care about animal welfare here. That's not our, that's not what this is all about. Um, conservation is really focused on populations and keeping sort of whole species around and making sure that there's enough of them so that they can have, you know, a healthy genetic diversity, but they are not concerned with the individual lives of the individuals that make up those species. Um, and, and, and then you have, you know, this whole other world of people who have really oriented their lives around animal rights or animal welfare, care a lot about individual animals. And sometimes they are sort of saying like Tom Reagan was one of the, um, animal rights thinkers who has said that he doesn't really care about extinctions if they occur without any suffering or, or, you know, if, if the sort of last Galapagos tortoise dies, that's not, doesn't bother him as much, uh, because, uh, if he dies of a happy old age, right? So I got interested in how you would try to reconcile these two worldviews, partly because I think that there's so many people out there, and I include myself in this group, who sort of generally think of themselves as both a nature lover and an animal lover. Like we, mm-hmm. we have both of these ethical systems going at some level. And the fact that they're often in conflict doesn't necessarily show up in our lives on a daily basis, but there are some real points of friction there. And I wanted to get into that. Yeah. I think, I think people do care about both of those things. And in polling, um, like conservation and biodiversity, and protecting an endangered species, and even stuff like better welfare for animals, uh, all seem to be popular. But one thing I've kind of always wondered is I'm I'm never totally sure why. Um, I think people talk about either like instrumental economic reasons, or maybe there's some you know disease cure hidden in the rainforest, or you know people use words like majestic and and beautiful, and and there's kind of an aesthetic or recreational. But then there also is like you're talking about people seem to more fundamentally care about um, both individual animals and organisms. So in all your reporting on this, what are kind of some of the most common or strongest themes that come up about why do people care about uh, the non-human world? Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've written about values in the environmental world for a long time. And, and, and there have been these sort of different trends in, in what we, and what people tend to say about why we should, preserve the natural world or, or, you know, care about the environment. And they are 
but when you when you kind of pin down the people, there almost always is a core what's the word maybe respect or admiration for mm-hmm. a kind of the non-human world that that goes beyond almost anything you can measure you know often the very same people who are doing these big analyses that show that you know the natural world filters our water and buffers our storms and provides x billion dollars worth of services to the u.s economy like when you really ask them in a quiet, quiet moment around the fire, why they care. It's because they just love the world and its beauty and its wonder and its unknowability. And it's, and it's, and it's, and in a lot of cases, it's separateness from humans, which I think is part of the reason that we got ourselves into this weird position of caring, only caring about nature that was quote unquote untouched by humans. Because I think we were trying to grope towards something there that is really valuable, which is just, parts of the world that aren't all about us, um, that aren't just totally serving human desires. Um, but I think there is something valuable there, but it isn't the lack of humans. It's that humans aren't centered. Uh, yeah, I find that mostly a, an encouraging answer. And I I don't know, I've kind of hoped that. Um, I think one of the things you grapple with that I really relate to is, you know, in some ways it's, you know, <laughs> despite all the, cruelty and suffering and death inflicted upon uh, animals, both wild and domestic. In some ways, it's easier to use everyday language to explain why we should care, you know, when an orangutan starves because of deforestation uh, than it is to explain why a species or an ecosystem uh, or just kind of this ongoing process of, I think you call it, of just time and sex and death and mutation and chance. Um as why that's something worth defending. Um, so does, you know, does that stuff matter? Yes. Yeah. I think you're right. And I think that, um, you know, you know, we, we obviously almost all of us believe that, you know, a human life is valuable. And, and so by extension, it's really easy to argue that, um, the life of an individual wolf or orangutan or elephant or dolphin or whatever is valuable because they are so much like us. They are, they are they are intelligent they have emotions they you know they have memories they have social ties um of course the further away you get in the tree of life perhaps the more difficult that argument is to make on a kind of an emotional level but you know i mean um i think it's very telling for example that often conservation organizations will use the sort of suffering of individual animals to fundraise, for example. Um, you know, there's a, the, I get a lot of email in my inbox about individual wolves that have been poached and what an outrage it is. And then there's a link to donate to a NGO that, that actually fights for, you know, endangered species protections for species. So I think that that's very telling that, that, that there's a more of a straightforward emotional uh, understandable, clear moral value there. And when you get to this sort of question about why the complexity of the natural world or the diversity of the natural world or the kind of interwoven nature of the non-human world is valuable and worth protecting. I mean, honestly, I, you know, I talk about this in the book. It's very difficult to, to prove that in a sort of a rigorous philosophical sense it starts to get kind of religious. It starts to get kind of spiritual there. Um, and and I wanted to be able to prove, just prove <laughs> that biodiversity was good. Like I really did. I tried. <laughs> uh, 
but I fail. And, and I, so I just have to leave the reader with, you know, uh, a kind of a, a hope that they'll look into their own heart and see how they feel about it. Yeah. I sometimes feel myself like it, it has to matter, like look at it, but sort of face. Right. It's sort of like, um, I don't know, my husband's the philosopher, so there's probably a term for this, but it's like the argument from obviousness, like, Mm -hmm. come on, just like, let me show you some pictures, you know, that I've taken when I'm out hiking. (laughs) And that's, but that's not a philosophical argument. Uh Well, on that note, um, were there profound early experiences in hikes or with animals that sort of led you into this? Yeah, I mean, I was very lucky to grow up in Seattle and to, um, you know, have some formative childhood experiences, some of which were right in the city, you know, seeing owls at Discovery Park in in urban Seattle or, um, uh, you know, just and then some which were were sort of more privileged stuff. I had a, a childhood friend whose parents took me backpacking in the Cascades when I was like 10. Um, and yeah, I used to write the most purple nature poetry you could imagine. <laughs> I still have the, so I definitely, um, but then interestingly, I really kind of fell away from an orientation around quote unquote nature in my teens and twenties because, um, I didn't identify at that time. I got to remember I'm old. So this is like the nineties. Um, I didn't identify with the earnestness that I thought you had to have in order to care about nature, right? Like there was a kind of a stereotype of the kind of person who, a tree hugger type who cared about nature. And I was like too ironically detached <laughs> to, <laughs> to see myself in that demographic. So I had sort of a, a, you know, a little bit of a separation from that part of myself. And then when I got a job writing about conservation and ecology for nature, I kind of came back into regular contact with thinking about the non-human world uh, from a much different perspective, a much less sort of uncritical worshipfulness. Hmm. Um, Yeah, I think there's a, I've, I've definitely noticed earnestness in both like environmental and animal rights uh, circles. I think in some ways that in a culture that tells you, you know, do species really matter compared to the economy or, or what have you, or really you care about chickens? Like, um, I don't know. I think it requires something of, I don't know, earnestness or willing to be yeah. a little bit of an outsider to, to stick well, through yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 on the one hand, I'm actually, I got to say, I'm really encouraged by, um, the sort of cultural shifts that I see in younger people. Um, you know, when I was a young person, it was like people worked full time to not care about things. That was really important <laughs> to, 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 to be cool. Mm-hmm. And that's gone away. And, and I think it's all for the good. I mean, I'm sure there's still subcultures that are ironically detached and whatnot, but I just see so many young people just caring about stuff openly and, and like proudly. And it just really warms my heart because I think that is uh, a much less, you know, um, pathological way to exist in the world. Um, so that's really hopeful for me. But I also want to say that I I do in my work try to really make space for people who don't see themselves as that sort of hippie tree hugger mm-hmm. caricature to create fun connections with the non-human world. I write a lot about urban nature and I really try to like in writing about urban nature or even writing about sort of far away nature, I try to really invite in people who 
just don't see themselves as that kind of demographic, you know, people who are interested in other things, people who are really urbanites, people who are really interested in popular culture, people who, I don't know, sneakerheads, you know, like everybody, everybody can have like these awesome relationships with the non-human world and you don't have to have a hacky sack or, you know, I mean, no one has a hacky sack anymore. It's 2022, but you know what I mean? Like uh-huh. you don't have to be the caricature to, in order to do that. Uh-huh. And that's and I, really important to me. Yeah. And I think that's part of the trouble with wilderness or nature as something over there is that learning to see and care about the urban nature or, or less, you know, less distant, less quote unquote pristine, uh, wildlife is a way actually into caring about all this stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, there for so long, I think there's really been this culture in this country that, you know, nature is for rich white people who have an REI membership. And, um, that really needs to change for two reasons. One is because we can't rely on that demographic to, to, to sort of save the planet and B, uh, you know, there's just so many, so much joyful rewards of queuing into, the plants and birds and animals in your local environment that just everyone deserves to have a piece of that happiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, uh, the culture that says we don't care about things and especially like we don't automatically see animals as agents, as autonomous individuals. um, One of the fun parts in your book is that you point out that this is a relatively new and somewhat fragile culture. Even, I mean, in particular among indigenous groups, but even in Europe, uh, you go through kind of a list of of these kind of court cases and other situations where humans engaged with other animals as if they very much knew what they were doing. Um, one of my favorite, there's a, a donkey who is um, accused of, of bestiality because of a human action and the, the her community came to her defense and, uh, I think the quote was, "They, they, she was in word and deed and in all habits of life a most honest creature," and I just, I was really stuck on a community of humans coming together and talking about the words of a donkey as honest. <laughs> You're right, word and deed. There, it's it's an interesting phrase to use for a donkey, although they're pretty vocal. Yeah, no, I, I would, I would do a donkey bray, but I'm not very good at it. <laughs> but yeah, I. I found out about these these animal trials, and obviously they're just incredibly fun from a historical kind of curiosity point of view. But I do think, as you say, that they get to this this point that that although the sort of Cliff Notes version of the human relationship with animals would ha- would tell us that that sort of Western thinking has you know treated them like they're just robots, there's always been this undercurrent of resistance to that or or kind of opposition to that. And I and I think that that's partially just because a sort of a purely Christian or then later you know rationalistic worldview has never totally been able to squelch the pre-existing worldviews. They've always continued. Um, but I also think it's just based on people are not idiots, and you can look at an animal and you can see that there's intelligence there, and you mm-hmm. can see it making decisions, and you can see it expressing emotions. So, you know, it was never going to be an entire you know, global, you know, semi-global culture thinks that animals are robots. Like that's just, it's too much. Yeah. So can you, can you tell us the story of the weevils? Ah, the weevils. 
So, so this is all based on this great book of kind of rounding up the animal trials in the sort of uh, in Europe, um, in the sort of medieval and early even modern, and the and and also in the South America, right? And uh, the weevils were accused of chewing on a church. Um, and now I'm going to mix up my two different insect trials here. But tell me, so is this the one where they were given their own little, they were basically exonerated from crime on the basis that, you know, God made them to eat plant material. So yes. they were just expressing their, their own nature. And the, uh, the authorities suggested that they'd be removed to some sort of pile of wood somewhere else where they could just be weevils and be themselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, how they were actually going to move all the weevils. I, I think they were going to hoping for some sort of divine... Uh, assistance for that but and i think that the detail that threw me is some the the human who'd been tasked to represent the legal the weevils in this case at first was like no this like this pile of wood isn't big enough like yeah that's right. he was like this is not an acceptable compensation for my for my clients uh-huh. yeah they took their job seriously it's very impressive yeah i mean i think one of the things i i kind of want to get into i was going to do it later but let's just do it now um is that is sort of a, a soft model for what would representing um, animal interests in in contemporary times look like. Right. Um, I think you talk yeah, about this. Go ahead. No, I was just going to sort of talk about the, the project that exists now to um, to represent animals and to sort of get their rights officially recognized in our legal system. Um, using the sort of uh, the sort of concept of you know you can't hold people against their will, and so what these group of lawyers are doing is they are representing animals, mostly great apes and elephants, that are being held against their will um, in zoos and and sort of you know other uh, situations where they're not where they're sort of very clearly not happy or not their welfare is low, their welfare is, is compromised. Um, and and the, the the strategy is essentially to keep filing these until they finally get a judge who says, actually, yeah, I do think that these animals have the right to their freedom. Um, and then that'll set a precedent that will then be enshrined in law. Yeah, so we've kind of agreed, like, we, we care about animals, we care about wildlife and species and ecosystems. Um and, I, you know, some of the examples you bring up, I think zoos are one of them. You come to a relatively clear cut, uh, like for the most part, zoos aren't doing all they say they are for conservation and probably aren't worth it from a an animal welfare perspective. But some of the other examples are pretty messy. Um, yeah. Let's... I sort of organized the book from the cases that I thought were easier to kind of come to a conclusion to cases that I thought were harder. Um, so the zoo chapter is relatively early in the book, cause, and I sort of end up by saying, yeah, I think zoos need to radically transform in order to be able to continue ethically. But then, as you say, some of the later chapters are much harder. Yeah. So let's talk about just kind of the uh, – you can pick a specific one if you like, or else just sort of the paradigmatic island. Uh, some endangered bird on an island is threatened by a, a non-native predator. Um, yeah, I think Gulf issues? Island is the best is the best case study that I found that's real because, you know, to have a, you know, philosophers usually often use hypothetical cases to talk about issues because then you can strip away all the sort of extraneous 
um, complicating factors and just focus on sort of the, 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 the values that play. And Goof Island is, such, is almost as pure as a hypothetical case because what you've got is this little tiny island in the South Atlantic, it's sort of like in the Arctic zone, and there's no humans on it. There's never been a human, full-time human population, so there's no kind of human, non-human relationships to worry about here. It's just like a land of non-humans. Except that that humans, whalers, many, many years ago brought some mice to this island. And this island also has the pretty much only breeding population of this kind of albatross called the Tristan albatross. And the mice eat the chicks. So what you have is this choice. Do you kill the mice and save the species of the Tristan albatross? Or do you say that we don't have a right to kill all these mice uh, the mice have done nothing wrong. Um, they are just living their lives. They were born there, um, and it's not ours to come in and play God, so we just leave it alone. That's the, that is where you're really seeing conservation, value, conservation values rub up against animal rights. And so that's why I think it's an interesting case study. So there's sort of first the argument that, well, of course, like we don't want invasive species on the island. You know, get rid of them. Uh, you don't love that framing of invasive species. I hate that framing. <laughs> I hate I hate the whole phrase invasive species. Uh-huh. Like the invasive species discourse is really troubling in a lot of ways. You know, first of all, the the kind of militaristic metaphors that are used, this idea of of these species mounting an invasion. These were chosen intentionally by an ecologist named Charles Elton in order to get people to care about what he saw as a really important issue. Um, but what it de- tends to do is this really unscientific thing, which is ascribe evil motivations to these organisms, to these animals and these plants that have no such evil motivations. Like, these are not bad guys, you know? Um, and so you see a lot of, like, I'm sure many of your listeners will have seen signs that are like, most wanted, like, don't, don't move the wood because of the, or like, don't, you know, check your boat for zebra mussels because of these bad guys. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the rhetoric around it has been really, you know, value laden in this kind of intense way. And I talk about how this can actually lead towards animal cruelty in some cases, because people will think it's okay to dispatch invasive animals in much more like kind of painful ways than they would ever do for say a pet or, or a wild native animal. Um, so I think it's, it's really problematic. And, and I also think that it leads us towards this kind of purism in which people think, well, if it's a not a native species, it needs to go, it needs to be removed just because it's not a native species. And that whole paradigm assumes that nature never changes or moves and things don't move around, which is not only false, but it kind of misses the point of why nature is awesome in the first place. You know, the fact that nature evolves and changes and things move around and adapt, like that's one of the cool things about nature. If it was exactly the same since, I don't know, since God made it into seven days, it would not be as awesome. So I find the paradigm, and I'm not the only one, like there's, a, there's quite a few thinkers inside conservation biology have been pushing back hard for like a good decade now against the invasive species paradigm. Um, Now, having said that, are there individual cases where, um, you know, there, there are lots of cases where introduced species don't really cause problems. They just show up. Um, But there are cases where they do cause problems or they do cause, let's say outcomes that humans don't like. Um, And when predators 
animal predators show up on islands, that is like the most likely uh, situation in which you will get an outcome that humans don't like. Um, and that's usually the threatened, the extinction or the near extinction of native species that get preyed upon. So this is a real phenomenon that's real and troubling, and it would be nice if we could do something about it. So I'm not saying all all non-native species everywhere should be completely left alone and we should never intervene. On the contrary, um, I'm saying that we, we need to decide whether or not to intervene not based on the origin of the species, but based on the consequences of that they're causing right now in the environment. Mm-hmm. And I Sorry, think... that was a bit of a long answer, but this is a really important issue to me. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a, it needed a long answer. Because um, then there's also a, a quote you have from a, a biologist, I believe Chris Thomas, who says something along the lines of like, island forms maybe simply aren't well adapted in the globalized world. And, you know, maybe it's, it's sad, but we should just kind of let them go. Um, and I, that was a line that I really, I didn't know how I felt about it or what to make of it one way or the other. Um, yeah, same actually. Um, when I first read that book, I was like, oh wow, like that's intense. Like that's very challenging. And then I was like, is this how other people feel when they read my books? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, so I, I still don't totally, I, th- I, I personally feel like, um, a certain amount of, of, of work and like, I'm willing to put in a certain amount of work. If I was running, you know, the department of conservation in New Zealand, I definitely would think that a certain amount of public expenditure and work is, is worth trying to keep some of these amazing animals alive that are island forms. And that maybe Chris is right. Like maybe they aren't super well adapted for the world we live in now where everything is connected by boats and airplanes. But that, you know, I, I still think that we can choose as humans to invest in them and to try to keep them around. Mm-hmm. I was, I was camping on, in, on Santa Cruz Island uh, mm. a few weeks ago in, in Channel Island National cool. Park, which is uh, in California. And um, there are these island foxes that only exist in the Did Channel Islands. Some? I saw so many, and what was interesting is that a lot of them congregate around the campsite. Uh, oh, of course, yeah. Would just, They're no know, fools. Right, and be, like, as soon as I saw someone, you know, break their camp and leave, there were there was a fox up on the, the picnic table. Um, right. And for, for those who don't know, uh, the these foxes were very critically endangered, um, in part due to a... I believe it was the because the bald eagles were endangered, the golden eagles came in and were preying on them or preying on their young or something. Um, but there's kind of been a lot of conservation work on those islands, and there used to be sheep and uh, and pigs, and there was a lot of talk. Like, apparently the sheep were live, were sort of captured and live transported, um, but you know they have this little documentary about the. It's sort of how they, you know, quote unquote, restored the island. Uh, and they say, you know, we brought in specialists to deal with the pigs. And it's, you know, this video of, you know, this hunter with a big rifle and a dog following him. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's very euphemistic language. And I part of me was like, these foxes are so cool. Um, and I'm so glad I'm seeing them. Um, and also like, gosh, like, how do I feel about, how do I feel about the cost that went into that? Um, and it can be even harder when it's something 
hard to measure against each other, which is like the existence of a fox species or a bird species and sort of pain and suffering and death for individual animals. Yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, I probably could have written this whole book using just examples from the Channel Islands. Like, there's so there's so much complexity there, and it's such an interesting case study. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, one, one example of that is that, you know, species that were introduced by Europeans were very carefully removed in that restoration, but the Channel Island foxes themselves were almost certainly brought to the islands by people, by indigenous people, hmm. um, you know, thousands of years ago. Um, and then they became their own species. So they're considered valuable because of when they showed up, uh, because of when humans moved them there. They're not considered invasive species. They're considered really important endangered species that need protection. So I mean, I think that just shows that there is no sort of, you can't use science to tell you what an ecosystem is supposed to look like. It's always going to come back to human values that are rooted in human history and and sort of politics and our our sort of feelings about different waves of colonists and settlers and it's it's definitely a a human value system that we're laying on top of these ecosystems it's not something you can deduce through pure science yeah Um, i I had a friend write um write something for fox recently about also kind of critiquing the invasive species paradigm um and then i saw sort of a conservation journalist tweeted out saying it was and called it anti-science specifically um and i just yeah. thought that was so interesting because i think there are i don't know there are places to agree or disagree with her arguments about invasive species um and she i think like me kind of comes into it more from the animal rights perspective mm-hmm. um but i don't like i don't know i think that there is a lot to be said on I either side there... but it didn't yeah. seem to me a question of science so much like if you're going to disagree with her I think the question was more values. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, I think I say this in the book several times, but it's worth repeating, you know, it's okay that we're making these decisions based on human values, but we need to admit that that's what we're doing because mm-hmm. then we can do it in a more, you know, open systematic way where we got all the stakeholders and we bring everybody together and we kind of share our values and our understandings of the situation. We can do it in a way that's, that's inclusive and healthy, um, but if we pretend that science is giving us the correct answers for all of these things, that actually has the effect of making the same old kind of PhD white guys the gods of what happens and what doesn't happen, mm-hmm. right? And that is a real problem. The people who have their own feelings about who you know who belongs in an ecosystem and who doesn't get completely excluded from the decision-making process because they're not scientists. And that's super troubling and super problematic, especially when indigenous people are the people getting shut out. Mm-hmm. So um, I think if there's anything that readers take away from my book, I think the two main messages are really that this is all about human values. These decisions are all about human values. They're not about science. And, you know, I mean, science obviously informs them. And then the other one is just that there are some decisions like what to do in the case of Goaf Island and the Tristan Albatross, where there may not be a correct answer that you can calculate Um, using some kind of ethical math. You may have to accept the fact that there are only two wrong options and just decide which one you think is less wrong. Have you read the novel When the Killing's Done by T.C. Boyle? Yes. Yeah, I actually reviewed it for Nature back when it came out. Okay. Um, Yeah, I thought it was a really, you know, it's a really interesting one to, to read if you're interested in the Channel Island case in particular. 
Um, mm -hmm. I, I have my quibbles with how he portrays certain sort of, he's got certain characters who kind of represent different perspectives and, um, uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. I also, everyone drinks way too heavily in that book. I feel like, <laughs> like yeah, I remember I... when I was reading it, I was like, every time any character gets upset, they have a drink. He's got this <laughs> character who's like a very thoughtful scientist. And when she finds out she's pregnant, she has a glass of wine. And I'm like, that is absolutely not what she would do. I'm sorry. <laughs> like that's TC Boyle talking. Yeah, I think the the characters I had quibbles with, but why I bring it up for those who don't know, it's basically the two main characters are a, a scientist who's trying to remove rats and pigs from the Channel Islands and an animal rights activist of sorts who is trying to stop her. Um, of sorts. And why I bring it up is there's a, a sort of a part in the in the book where you you kind of do make your peace with in some island cases, there are endangered bird species that you would be, you know, you are okay with killing for. Um, and I think there are people who are okay with going to, you know, either, I don't know, killing, but going to extreme lengths uh, for the for the mice that you would be killing um, on that island. And right. how do we... I don't know. Are there examples you've seen or how, how can we think about solving these questions? Because right now, who makes these decisions? Yeah, well, who makes like for in Go Island, for example, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds uh, and some other organizations like that have essentially made the decisions as long along with whatever kind of authorities um, are have jurisdiction over the island. Often in these cases, you know, it's essentially delegated to conservation biologists about whether or not to. Uh, use killing as part of the tool set. Um, there, now, in some cases, depending on what country it's in and what the laws are, there might be a public comment period, um, and then there might be some opportunity for public involvement there. But typically, I have to say, most conservation groups who are doing these projects will do the bare minimum that's legally required in terms of uh, getting people's con you know, input. Because, honestly, many of them find the objection to the killing irrational and they just don't want to engage with it mm -hmm. so um, because they're very committed to their worldview that that species extinction is extremely morally bad and great measure you know it kind of like extreme measures are justified to prevent it so um yeah i would like it if there was a process that was perfect for 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 making these decisions as a group in in and having everybody who has a stake in the outcome involved. And I understand that that would often mean a huge amount of meetings and outreach and comments and that kind of stuff. But I, I actually don't really see a way around that kind of process if you want to really do it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then throwing in further that I think you mentioned too, like the idea of some sort of appointed representative on the animals. Right. interests. Yeah, exactly. So, like, let's say you're doing the Go Island. Well, let's say it was a, the some sort of Channel Island uh, restoration project, and they wanted to to do something that would involve killing, you know, pigs or something. So, not only would you have uh, representatives of of indigenous people of California, the descendants of the people who were maintaining the Channel Islands um, and kind of managing them for millennia. You would have your conservationists and your ecologists and your people who maybe the people who care about the ranching heritage on the islands 
Um, and then you would have representatives for the foxes and representatives for the pigs and representatives for the eagles. And they would be sort of um, tasked the way that like a child, um, a court appointed child advocate currently operates, um, where the person is in many cases actually a, like a, a volunteer from the community. Um, uh, and they, uh, their role is to sort of speak for a person who can't speak for themselves. So yeah, I can imagine these meetings would would be complicated, very complicated. <laughs> and but that's, uh, but like you know, there's not really a way around that. These are complicated issues. Yeah, there's kind of disagreement over even some of the basic um, questions of what is required. Um, so in the book, you you bring up what uh, a way of approaching this called compassionate conservation. Um, can you explain sort of what that is and maybe its its strength and its limits? Yeah, it's an interesting sort of new movement. Um, one of the main leaders is a woman named Ariane Wallach, who I profile in the book. There's some other leaders as well, but um, the, their their perspective starts from a critique of of current conservation methods, which you know. And I think that for listeners in sort of continental North America, they might be like, "How often are conservationists really killing?" Um, animals as part of their work? And the answer is like, it really depends where you are in the, on the planet and on the continent of North America. It's not as much of a, there's definitely cases where it's used. Sea lions are sometimes controlled for salmon. Uh, barred owls are shot for spotted owls, you know, things like that. But where you really see it a lot is on islands and on the sort of big islands of New Zealand and Australia. So there's chapters in the book that are, I went to all those places to report. And Ariane's based in Australia where the amount of killing that's done for conservation is truly on a very large scale. Um, and so her, her, you know, compassionate conservation critique starts from just saying, Hey, we're acting like this is the only way to do anything good. The only way to save these animals is to always kill. And we're just reaching for our poisons and our guns kind of by default. And we're not, we're not really taking the fact that these killings have moral weight seriously. So that general critique, I think, is pretty fair. I think that's the case, that conservation has gotten into kind of a culture of killing um, where alternatives are not necessarily very thoroughly investigated. However, where I think that the compassionate conservation has, has maybe yet to mature is in providing tools for people who say, well, okay, if you don't want me to kill these, you know, these foxes or these cats, these non-native predators that are gobbling up the native animals, but I really want to save the native animals, what do you want me to do? So one thing that Ariane's doing is trying to investigate um, letting dingoes uh, kind of control the numbers of cats and foxes because they're also killing dingoes on a huge scale in Australia. So that actually was sort of surprising to me because the sort of um, solution that she's investigating that will allow humans to stop killing is to, in some ways, outsource it to dingoes. So, you know, then this, this opens up this ethical question about whether it really matters whether you pull the trigger or whether you let a dingo do your killing for you. Right. Um, some people, you know, Ariane very much thinks that it does matter that we should just let these ecosystems sort themselves out in a much more autonomous way and kind of get out of the way. Um, other people, uh, like uh, James Russell, who's a uh, New Zealand ecologist who I quote in the book, think that this is just passing the buck and that if we're going to, if we want to control the numbers of these animals, we should be prepared to do it personally. And I honestly think that there's um, 
strengths and weaknesses to both of those arguments. I think I think it's worth bringing up how um, I don't know, just kind of how gnarly some of these examples are of of strategies to get rid of um, non-native species. The death row dingoes really stood out to me. Yeah, um, that one's wild. So, do you, wanna, <laughs> do you yeah. want me to explain it? I, I would love that. Okay, so this was a, a particular pilot project, so it was actually pretty small scale, but basically there was this the island in Australia, Polaris Island, and it had uh, quite a number of goats on, on it. And goats are often targeted for killing in conservation projects. In the Galapagos, for example, something like 40,000 goats were killed. Uh, because they are such incredibly thorough devourers of vegetation, that if you're trying to protect native vegetation, you, you can't have just a bunch of goats on the island uh it's they're just they will eat it all it's um so what they did to try to get rid of these goats is they thought well you know dingoes might be pretty good at killing these goats so why don't we put some dingoes on the island okay so so they didn't want the dingoes to be permanent residents of the island either so the plan was to let the dingoes kill all the goats and then go shoot the dingoes but because the island is very steep uh, they were worried they wouldn't be able to find all the dingoes to kill them. And so they actually implanted poison underneath their skin. Or was it, it was like in the collar. It was in these collars that they put around them. And after a certain time elapsed, the collars would automatically inject them with the poison and then they would die. So I don't know if you've seen Escape from New York, but that's basically the plot of Escape from New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that you have to... You, you know, do this, the dirty work by the time, you know, the poison pellet kills you. So I think the part of, like, I don't know if it's actually worse than any other plan of killing animals. And it's, it effects, seems fiendish it, it in feels, some way. Right. <laughs> I think it's, it's treating them so purely as a tool to be discarded, which seems to be yes. the opposite of what yes. we're trying to do uh, with the world, which is not treat it as a tool to be discarded. Um, and yeah, I, think, I think you put your finger on it, I, which I guess gets me to sort of one of the last questions I have for you, which is, um, which is more about one of the other, in addition to what we've talked about, um, one of the other things that we think we should care about that you think we should care about is, uh, sort of a certain humility. Um, and I think you, you simultaneously open the door to more, uh, uh, more active interventions into wildlife than are typically considered, or at least more directly active, um, but also tempering that with humility. And how do you, how and why do you balance those? I mean, obviously I think the work of balancing when to intervene to sort of save stuff and fix stuff and when to step back and let the other species cope with the, with the challenge is, I don't think we're ever going to get that totally right. I think it's always going to be difficult to find that perfect balance, but I think you know, striving towards some good balance of that is, is a good idea. Um, you know, when I talk about how wilderness in the sense of uh, some sort of non-human world untouched by humans doesn't really exist. And then I talk about wildness in terms of animals having autonomy. I think it's, you know, by practicing a little bit of humility, it helps us honor that autonomy of other creatures. So sometimes I feel like uh, you know, animals and plants will come up with unexpected solutions to challenges that we wouldn't have thought of and that we might find kind of challenging. You know, often I talk a lot in the book about cases where 
as the climate has warmed or as species have moved around, we've seen hybridization events. And those hybridization events freak us out. We don't like them because we're purists and we want everything to be in its perfect little box. But those hybrids might actually be pretty well adapted to the changing world. And that might represent a sort of solution that we didn't come up with, that, came, that other species came up with to challenging, changing conditions. So I think it's just, you know, it's, it is, you know, I think the impulse to kind of put wilderness on a pedestal really stemmed from a desire to be humble and to get out of the way and to let nature do its thing. I think it came from, honestly, from a good place, from a, from a, a desire to not be the center of attention and to not be anthropocentric. But because, you know, the way that we have valorized wilderness has tended to completely uh, erase indigenous land management and because it's like still being used to dispossess people and to, um, you know, justification for killing and organisms that aren't native, you know, it's led us to some, some dark places, I would say. Um, but I think that original impulse towards trying not to always be the center of everything is still worth honoring. Um, we can have relationships with other species that aren't all about us, that are mutually beneficial. And I think that's really the future of conservation, is not getting out of the way or exiling ourselves from nature. It's fixing our relationship to other species. And that often means giving them more space to have agency themselves. Yeah, so has that, um, maybe let's bring that down to earth a little bit, um, has has thinking and engaging about these issues changed how you live your life at all, either how you approach your writing or your political engagement or, you know, how do you talk to your kids about animals or anything like that? Well, I don't take them to the zoo anymore after <laughs> I did that research. I'll tell you that. Um, and that's definitely like, that's a real change. I mean, I was, I was just like your standard mom taking her kids to the zoo until fairly recently. Like I, I did have qualms, but because I hadn't really dug into this mm -hmm. claim, that they were also conservation organizations. I feel like I was sort of being like, well, they're, they're good actors in the world. Um, so yeah, that's definitely changed. Um, and then, you know, I, I think that I am over the process of writing this book, I have solidified the way I talk about quote unquote nature. Like I don't talk about nature anymore because I do think that seeing as humans, seeing humans as something that's apart from nature is a fundamental error that is going to really get in the way of, of doing right by the world, by us finding the right relationship. So I've, I'm done with wilderness. I'm done with nature. Those are not concepts that I think are useful or serve anyone anymore. I, I can talk about, we can talk about the non-human world. We can talk about making space for non-humans to be, you know, have live their best lives. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I, I, I really believe that the, the solution to our environmental problems is fixing our relationships. Mm -hmm. I think you, you say in the book kind of your most straightforward advice for readers is to make room for other species and fight for climate justice. Um, yes, yeah. And like, you know, we've been talking this whole hour about animals and conservation and saving species. And you're like, well, climate change comes out of left field. But but. If the climate, everything becomes more hard, more difficult, and every species gets more stressed and pushed, and, you know, it all becomes much more fraught if we have extreme climate change. The more we can chill out the climate change, the less of these really complicated ethical dilemmas we're going to get into. Um, and the more time all the other species will have to adapt to the, to the change that's already happened. Uh, there's been plenty of uh, changes already. I mean, we're all living through it right now. 
what would you hope readers of the book or listeners to the podcast do about all this? Well, I do think that, you know, another message that I have in a lot of my work is that, you know, just as I say that fixing our relationship with other species is the key towards environmental happiness, I, I think that trying to do anything as individuals as lone individuals is just is 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 not the way forward Mm -hmm. and i think that when it comes to something like climate change we've been sold this notion that you everyone has to like reduce their individual carbon footprint and that's just it's never gonna we're never gonna fix our climate change problems by people who care reducing their own individual carbon footprints like that's just not gonna fix the problem so it has to be together we have to we have to change these big systems um, we have to change how we do conservation. We have to change how we, you know, we have to get climate justice. And so what I would recommend readers or listeners to do is to, f- to pick a part of that big, complicated swirl of, of, of that big fight to sort of fix things that speaks to them or that's important to them. And then join with others, you know, hopefully, you know, a pre-existing group. Like, you know, not, not everyone has to, like, found their own NGO here. Um, <laughs> But like find other people who care about the part of this that you care about and then join them and work together collectively to change the systems around how it's managed and handled and planned for in the future. And by doing that, not only will you be much more effective than trying to do everything on your own. I mean, by all means, do this stuff on your own that speaks to you, that's important to you. Put the solar panels on your house. I've done that. Compost, all the things that, that you like want to do and that you have time to do, but really prioritize that collective action because that's where we get the big results. Um, and I would say, you know, but, but do it at a sustainable level that you can sustain for years. So don't go all in right away and then burn out. I speak from a place of semi burnout right now. Um, so it's a real danger. Um, and, but do it with others because not only will you be more effective, you will then forge relationships with other people who care about the same thing that you care about. And that will be really protective of your mental health. When it seems like nobody else cares, you will at least have your people that care with you. Yes, I think that has been really valuable for me. Um, One last question, I'll let you go. Uh, Some of the most beautiful writing in the book is on this theme of how sometimes there's no easy answers where everyone wins. Uh, We, like you say, we all stand on a pile of corpses that an inevitable part of the sort of ecological evolutionary process is pain, death, predation. Um, Given that there are some who say sort of it's silly to start caring too much about wild animals or ecosystems because it's, you know, it's red and tooth and claw anyway. Um, So why not just throw up our hands? Um, Yeah, it's tempting some days, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Because this stuff is hard. And so it is tempting to just be like, you know what, We're, let's let's just forget it. Um, but I think the reason that we should stay engaged with this stuff is that, you know, in in this world, you have to choose and make your own meaning. And, and I think that trying to just please yourself is never going to make you happy. Um, I, I think the only real route to happiness is to care for other people. I mean, that's how we're built. We're social creatures. And in some ways, you know, our our hope uh, has always been that we will enlarge the circle of other people that we care about. In some ways, I feel like this this generation is learning how to care about non-human people in a way that previous generations struggled with. Um, and it's not easy, right? Like I said that in the book, that 
if you love ecosystems, then how, what do you do about the fact that they're filled with suffering and blood and death? And I don't have an easy answer for that. But I think trying to kind of live your feelings of love and care towards the world at some level is ultimately going to make you a more full, well-rounded person than giving up. Well, thank you for that. And thanks for coming on the show. Um, yeah, the book is Wild Souls by Emma Maris. It's one of my favorite books I've read in a long time. There's so much more we could have talked about, so much more in the book. Um, so if you were interested in any of this, you'll just have to go read it. Um, That's right. Thank you. Available at better booksellers oh, yes. everywhere. <laughs> I should. Available at better booksellers everywhere. Um, cool. Anything else you want to add or... No, I mean, I guess I think I think we covered it pretty well, you know, and I think, you know, that in the end, y you can't have it all. You can't save all the ecosystems and you can't take care of all of the individual players in the ecosystems, because in order for the ecosystems to flow, there has to be death and suffering. And I think the learning how to live with that duality is really, I haven't done it yet, but um <laughs> I'm, but I'm working on it. And, and I think that's all we can ever ask of ourselves is to just work on this stuff. That's all for our first episode. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you want to join the conversation, I'm hosting a monthly book club for Patreon subscribers of $7 a month or more, um, where we can dig deeper into issues like those discussed with Emma today, um, or issues in our other books, and also talk about how to translate ideas into political action so yeah if you'd be interested in joining a book club like that uh, check out our patreon page thanks so much 